The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Thank you, Dave. You may be seated. You already you guys know the drill. Um, well, today's text uh, answers broadly, answers uh, two big questions for us. One, what's God's purpose for my life? And two, how can I get the resources that I need to fulfill that purpose? What's God's purpose for my life? And how do I get the provision that I need to fulfill that purpose? I think we could all agree those are relatively significant questions, but I think we could also agree, if you're like me, uh, you don't always do the best job of answering these questions. Either we're too busy to think about such things and we just wake up five, six years later down the road and wonder, how in the world did I get here? Or we think about such things based upon our own desires and what seems like a good idea to us at the time. I think all of us have said more than once seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, For example, uh, when I was 16 years old, and like every 16-year-old had life completely figured out, I know you guys right there with me, um, I thought I was going to be a professional golfer. I thought my purpose in life was to play professional golf. And after all, can you blame me? I mean, who would not want to play a game uh, for a living and make lots of money and be on TV? I mean, as a 16-year-old guy, you're older than 16, but you're, you're with me. You know, I mean, that, that seems like a good idea at the time. And so uh, because that was my purpose, what David has de- had decided was my purpose, it made perfect sense for me to go uh, to a golf academy down in Florida. And some, for some reason, my parents allowed me to do this. Uh, and so I went to a sports academy, and I was, man, walking in my purpose uh, until I met my roommate, David Gossett, who actually was playing some PGA golf tournaments, and I realized uh, that just because I could beat people in my hometown didn't mean I could do well on the PGA Tour. And I I saw this gulf uh, that separated me and the professional golfers of our day. And so, as you can see, I'm standing behind this pulpit instead of playing golf on Sunday on TV. So didn't really work out for me. A couple missteps along the way. That's not my last, but it's far enough that it's not all that embarrassing. If you know me, I've made several missteps after that. Um, But I don't think I'm alone here. I think we all have a problem really coming up with the right answers to what's God's purpose for my life uh, and how can I get the provision I need uh, to accomplish this purpose. And so God knows we need help. And so he gives us his scripture, his word, and we have Hebrews 13, 17 through 21 uh, to help us out this morning. And we see the broad answers to these questions are this. What's God's purpose for my life? Well, it's to do his will, not my will, not our will, but his will. And how do we get the provision we need to do that will? Well, we look to him. The promise of this passage is that God will give us everything we need to do his will. God will give us everything we need to do his will. And if we, as David was saying, if we bury this truth deep in our hearts, it will change every aspect of our life, how we think, how we face trials, how we face our own weaknesses and insufficiencies. If we have in the depth of our heart a belief that God will provide everything we need to do his will. So we're going to try to bury that truth in our heart this morning by looking at it from four different perspectives. One, God's greatness. Two, the certainty of his provision. Three, an important means of his provision through the leaders that he gives his church. 
and for the required response from us to God's provision. God's greatness, the certainty of his provision, the means of his provision through leaders, and the response that is required of us. So let's look at his greatness. Now, don't get confused. We're going to go to the last two verses of our passage today before we move up, okay? So we're going to start with Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. I think it'll make sense to you uh, as we go forward. In 20 and 21, uh, we are privileged to hear the author of Hebrews intercede and pray for those to whom he wrote his letter. And as we listen into this prayer, this benediction, we see a picture of the greatness of our God. Look at Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace, may the God of peace, I think Nate got me a little bit there. May the God of peace, it's easy to gloss over statements like this, the God of peace. Yeah, he's the God of peace. But God's peace is an important attribute and is key for us this morning. It has significant meaning for us as his people this morning. Wayne Greedham has defined God's peace by saying that it means in God's being and his actions, he is separate from all confusion and disorder. That is, in everything that God is and everything that he does, it is completely separate from confusion and disorder. The Hebrews are, are reading this and looking at the circumstances of their life and realizing it's the exact opposite of that. Remember, the letter was written to them in order that they would persevere in the context of the confusion and the disorder that they were facing because of their decision to follow Christ. And more personally, our lives are often immersed in confusion and disorder. Our schedules have us running at a breakneck pace. Our relationships often remind us more of the consequences of the fall than the redemptive nature of grace. Our jobs often lead us to frustration rather than worship, and our struggle with sin, the battle between the flesh and the spirit that Paul talks about, injects confusion and disorder into nearly all of our relationships and every context of our life. We are a people who are immersed in confusion and disorder, but God, our God, is a God of peace. To our confusion, he brings truth and comfort. To our disorder, he brings order He brings peace as our God of peace. And as the author of Hebrews has been encouraging us over and over and over again, we're to draw near to this God of peace so that we can experience that which he offers. He says this in Hebrews 4.16. He says, We are to, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Grace and mercy aren't some abstract theological concepts here. They're practical means of God's help for us in our time of need. We need peace, and God, our God, is a God of peace. But our great provider is not only the God of peace, he's also the God of all power. It is the power of God that raised Christ Jesus from death to life. This is not an ordinary thing. It is not normal to raise someone from death to life. And it's God's power and God's power alone that raised Christ from the grave. Look at Hebrews 13, 20 again. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of his eternal covenant. The expression of God's power by raising Christ from the dead is what put an end to the old covenant and brought about the reality of the new. 
Throughout the entirety of the book of Hebrews, the author has been contrasting the old covenant and its imperfections and the new covenant and its perfections. And we saw the defect in the old covenant was the sin problem of the people. The people had sinned and that caused separation between them and their holy God. But the sacrifices of blood, uh, of bulls and goats wasn't sufficient to take care of their sin problem. There was still something else needed. The people had a problem with sin that separated from God and, and precluded them to walk in obedience to his revealed will that he had graciously given them through the law. And as you read the Old Testament, you are reminded again and again of the sin problem and the rebellion of God's people. And as you read this tragic story, there's a promise. There's a promise that one day God would enter into a new covenant with his people whereby he would deal graciously with them, mercifully with them by taking away their sin problems so that they could draw near to him and have intimate fellowship with him. That his spirit actually, we read in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, would live within his people so that their hearts would be circumcised so that they could obey him and know him and love him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But God is a God of grace and mercy, but he's also a God of justice. God can't leave sin unpunished. And rebelling against an infinitely holy God results in an infinite debt that no one has the resources to pay. So how can God be a God of grace and mercy who forgives and acts graciously and mercifully to his people while at the same time being a God of justice who can only punish sin? He can't disregard it. How can God be both a God of grace and mercy and a God of justice? Tim Keller calls this the riddle of the Old Testament. Well, the riddle was solved on the cross of Calvary. How can God be a God of justice and mercy and also, how can he be a God of grace and mercy and also a God of justice? Because of Jesus. The riddle was solved on the cross of Calvary because Our infinite debt that we owed because of our rebellion against God was paid by our infinite Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's no justice, there's no judgment, there's no punishment, there's no wrath left for us. All we have if we're in Christ is the grace and mercy of our God. This is the gospel. Jesus is how God can be both gracious and merciful and a God a perfect justice. The simple message of the gospel, which is why we're here, is that we are reconciled to the Father through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's it. Chris Tomlin, in a recent song, Jesus Loves Me, puts the gospel, his gospel experience this way, and I think it's a common experience for us. I was lost. I was in chains. The world had a hold of me. My heart was a stone. I was covered in shame when he came for me. I couldn't run. I couldn't run from his presence. I I couldn't run. I couldn't run from his arms. Jesus, he loves me. He loves me. He is for me. Jesus, how can it be? He loves me. He's for me. And it was a fire deep in my soul. I'll never be the same. I stepped out of the dark and into the light when he called my name. Jesus made a way for us to be reconciled to the Father. 
It's the heart of the book of Hebrews. It's the heart of the whole Bible. We've seen it at several points in the book. Hebrews 1.3, after making purification for sins, he, that's Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 9.12, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 12.24, but you have come to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel in Hebrews 13, 12, last week's passage. So Jesus suffered outside the gate. Why? In order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus' death in our place for our sin is sufficient to reconcile us to God. But as we've said, Jesus didn't remain in the tomb. He didn't remain dead. God in his matchless power raised Christ from the dead. And it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that proves one, the sufficiency of the payment that he made for our sin and also marks the end of the old covenant that was imperfect and a limited duration and the beginning of the new covenant, which is perfect and will be of an eternal duration. The resurrection of Jesus Christ demonstrates God's power. God will provide us with everything we need to do his will. We see our God is a matchless God in his greatness. He's a God of all peace. He's a God of all power. And once we see his greatness, the certainty of his provision becomes real to us because it's based on his greatness. His provision is certain because he's the only one who can do it. He has no limit to his resources and so he can supply us out of his greatness with everything we need. Let's look at the greatness of, or the certainty of his provision in Hebrews 13, 21. Hebrews 13, 21. Now may the God of peace, this great God, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In this prayer, the author of Hebrews is praying two things for his people. One, that God would equip them, and two, that God would work in them. That is, Lord, please give them the resources they need, but also the strength and the power and the ability they need to use those resources in order to carry out your good and your perfect will. It's a great prayer. It's a prayer that we can pray for the people in our community groups, the people that we're reaching out to uh, in our communities. But it's also an amazing prayer because we know that God answers it for all of his people. We have the prayer in Hebrews 13, 21. We have the answer if you turn over to 2 Peter 1, 3. Look at 2 Peter 1, 3 with me. His divine power, that's God's, has granted to us some of the things. No. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Here we have the answer to the prayer in Hebrews 13, 21. God for certain, provides us everything that we need to do his perfect will. And just, just think about that. That is great news for the Christian. All of the Christian life doesn't ultimately depend on us and our resources. It depends on God and his resources. Now, we're to labor with everything that we have and spend our lives, pour out our lives for God's purposes, as we'll see. But it's ultimately God and his faithfulness and his strength upon which all of this depends. And that's good news. 
if you are aware at all of your weaknesses. God's strength is faithful to complete what he starts. But notice there's, there's an important qualifier here. God will provide us everything we need to do his will. Okay, so think back to my 16-year-old dream of being a professional golfer. Why am I David Ham and not David Toms? You know, why wasn't I given the ability to hit it 300 yards, hit 67% of the greens, make 1.5 putts, you know, uh, around on average? Uh, because God's will for my life, evidently, uh, wasn't to be David Toms. He gave me the name David Ham. Um, he's, I'm supposed to be here. David's supposed to be outside on this beautiful weather playing golf. That's okay. That's God's will. That's his decision. Um, but it's fair to ask at this point, if God, if we can be certain that God is going to provide us with everything we need to do his will, well, how can we know what his will is? It's a relatively big question, um, that we can't fully unpack here. Um, but what I want to do in the couple minutes we have is I want to give us two verses in the New Testament, two passages that I think give us a healthy and helpful framework for how to go about answering this question. What is God's will? And the first passage is in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And in this passage, we get a picture of God's broad will, the broad will of God at this point in history. It's this. Jesus says this after his resurrection. He's gathered his disciples towards the end of the gospel. Matthew says this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Since Genesis 3, in the wake of the fall, God made a promise. He promised that, in essence, everything that was lost in the fall would be at one time restored. And that restoration was going to come through the offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That happened on the cross. Jesus crushed, defeated the enemy by dying the death that we deserved and raising from the grave. It was a huge step in the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 3, but we know the full restoration of all things lost in the fall has not yet happened. We're still looking forward to Revelation 21, Revelation 22. We can all testify to that fact as we live uh, in a fallen world and feel the consequences of the fall every second of every day of our life. We're still looking for the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise of restoration that he made in Genesis 3.15. And when is that going to ha- take place? The scripture says that's going to take place when Christ comes back for us, and we get to taste the fullness of fulfillment in Revelation 21. As the new Jerusalem comes down, the new heaven and new earth become a reality. Every tear is wiped away from every eye. There's no more sadness. There's no more sickness. There's no more death. We're not there yet. But when Christ comes back, he will bring about the new heaven and the new earth. All things will be made new. But the scripture tells us in Matthew 24, 14, that that's not going to come about until the great commission is fulfilled. We read this. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 14. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So what's God's broad will? What's his broad purpose? Well, it's the proclamation of the gospel to every people group to make worshipers 
from among them for their good and his glory. That's his broad will, the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Well, if we're honest, for most of us, that seems somewhat out there and lofty and detached from my daily living, going to work, trying to parent, coming to church on Sundays when I can, sports schedules. I mean, how does the will of God and the fulfillment of the Great Commission touch my life? And that brings us to our second passage, one of my favorites, Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10, if you have your Bibles. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We participate in God's broad will, the fulfillment of the Great Commission, by walking in the good works that he prepared for us before we were born. Well, it sounds easy enough. Just walk in those good works. Just going to figure out those good works. Well, that's where it gets a little more difficult, isn't it? The Bible gives us broad uh, frameworks with, with when uh, to work, but doesn't always give us specific answers. So should I take this job or that job? Well, um, let's pray about it. Uh, should I do this or that? Should I move here or there? Well, um, let's work together as a community. It's hard. Uh, it's, it's difficult. And discerning the good works that God prepared before us uh, beforehand, before we were born, is hard for two reasons. One, uh, we're limited beings that don't know all the facts that we need to know to make a perfectly good, informed decision. And even if we did know all the facts, we wouldn't have the ability to put it all together as we should. We're limited beings. Also, uh, it's difficult because we have a great enemy who is trying everything he can to distract us from walking in these good works that God has prepared for us. We're limited, and we have an enemy who's trying to prevent us from doing this. So um, we need help. (laughs) The bottom line is we need help discerning these good works that God has prepared for us that we could walk in and thereby participate in the fulfillment of, of his great commission. And God knows we need help, and so he provides us with many, many means. He provides us his word. He gives us, uh, when we put our faith in him, his Holy Spirit that lives within us, that gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. Uh, He also, as we see in this passage, gives us leaders who are put in our lives, in our communities of faith, to watch over our souls. So God will give us everything we need to do his will He's a great God. His provision is certain. And one of his ways of providing for us is the leaders that he has placed to watch over us. Look at Hebrews 13, 17. We're moving back up in the passage. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. We're going to take the obey and submit here in just a little bit. But let's note here that God has given us part of his provision for us in giving us everything we need to do his will, our leaders. And these leaders in our covenant communities are said to be those who watch over our souls as those who will give an account. And as they do that, as we said in the baby dedication, they're following the example of Jesus Christ who was said in Hebrews 13, 20, to be the great shepherd of the sheep. And in 1 Peter 2, 25, Jesus is described as the shepherd and overseers of our soul. And as we said in the dedication, a shepherd essentially does three things. He leads his sheep, he feeds his sheep, and he protects his sheep. 
So as Jesus is the great shepherd over all the sheep, he delegates that shepherding to under shepherds who are to lead the people of God to walk in the good works that he's prepared so that they can be part of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. They are to feed the people under their care with the word of God, and they are to protect the people in their care from everything that would seek to harm and distract them from walking in the good works that God has prepared for them. And oh yeah, uh, the leaders are going to give an account for how well they do this. If you really think about that reality, it is a heavy and weighty truth that God has given this community leaders to watch over our souls as Christ watches over souls uh, and that they're going to give an account for how well they do this. Um, This is why we are weird here at Norris Ferry Community Church. We'll just claim the weirdness. That is our reputation. Uh, We're weird, so fine, we'll be strange. It's why we take membership so seriously. If the elders are given the task to watch over the souls of those placed in their care, uh, the first step in that equation is they have to know those who have been placed in their care. Uh, And so the six-week connection group also gives everyone the time to learn about us, uh, learn about our weirdness, if you will, learn why we do what we do to see if you agree with that, to see if it's consistent with the scripture. Uh, But it also gives the elders and the staff the ability uh, to get to know you. Uh, If we're going to keep watch over your souls, we'd like to know where you are with the Lord. Have you come to know him as Savior? Can you articulate the gospel? Uh, These are part of the intentional reasons why we take membership maybe a a little more seriously than other places because we believe the elders of this church will have to give an account for how well they shepherd those that the Lord had sovereignly placed uh, in their care. It's also uh, the reason why we make community groups mandatory here at Norris Ferry Community Church. We have six elders who are tasked by Hebrews 13, 17 with watching over the souls of 189 active members. Uh, That math doesn't really work out. (laughs) There's no way that six people can have an accurate and deep personal knowledge of 189 people. Just think about it in your own life. Uh, I know really well probably about five Um, And so that's why we have our 189 members divided into groups of 12. Uh, Those are our community groups. And each of those community groups has a couple that is the leader uh, that has been with the church for at least two years and a co-leader. So we have a leadership team of four people for every 12. And those four people uh, are tasked uh, with watching over the souls of those in their group. We made this explicit in this uh, last community group leaders training we read Hebrews thirteen seventeen and said, oh, by the way, community group leaders, uh, you have been charged with watching over the souls of those in your groups. And um, yeah, you're going to give an account for that. At that point, I had a couple leaders come up and try to back out. But at that point, it was a little uh, too late. But uh, seriously, that's why we structure things uh, the way that we do. Uh, it's why community groups are the lifeblood of this church. It's why I'm at this church. Uh, Ashley and I, when we were in Dallas, we had a really hard time in our life. I've talked about that here before. Uh, And we had the wonderful grace of being part of a community group uh, where people were watching over our souls. Uh, And it saved us. It really nurtured us. Uh, The life-on-life ministry is something we realized we needed on a weekly basis uh, to encourage us to walk in the good works that the Lord had prepared for us, but also uh, to protect us 
and to draw a hedge around us uh, so that the enemy would not be able uh, to take us down. Now, if you've been at the church for a while and you've been part of the community group ministry, you're going to perhaps say, well, that sounds a lot better than it really is. I mean, and of course, whenever people are involved, whenever particularly I'm involved, uh, things are going to be less than perfect. Uh, But I would just encourage you, especially this time of the year, when we've been going for months and months and maybe uh, the weekly meeting has started to become somewhat taxing in preparing meals and cleaning the house and getting everything ready, man, community groups are a means of grace for you. They're an extension of the ministry and call of the elders to watch over your souls. So I'd encourage you to rethink Uh, reprioritize, lean in to those that the Lord has sovereignly placed in your life. Let them help you discern the good works that the Lord has prepared for you uh, and let them into your life so that they can watch over your souls um, and protect and minister to you. So God will provide everything that we need to do his will. God is a great, big, awesome God. He's the God who's making this promise. His provision based on his greatness is certain Part of his provision is by providing leaders to us. So what is our required response to God's provision of leaders? Well, let's look at Hebrews 13, 17 through 19, and we're given three responses that are required of us. We are to obey, submit, and pray. We're to obey our leaders, submit to our leaders, and pray for our leaders. Let's look at the first two Responses together, Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey your leaders and submit to them. These two instructions sound somewhat countercultural, don't they? Uh, in our culture, church uh, is more of a, a, an add-on. Uh, you go when you can. Um, you know, it's not a, a huge part for a lot of us in our life. And so to say we're supposed to submit and obey to these church leaders Uh, just seems a little strange to us. Uh, But the call to submit and obey is not strange in the scriptures. Uh, It's all throughout the scriptures that in light of our union with Christ, we glorify him by submitting to the authority structures around us. Let's just look at a couple examples through the Bible. Ephesians 5.21, we're called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5.22, wives are called to submit to their husbands. Ephesians 6.1 through 2, we all like this one. Children are called to obey their parents. Okay, just hitting the first row there. Ephesians 6, 5, bondservants, our employees, are called to submit to their earthly masters, our employers. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 13, we we learn that we're called to submit to secular authorities. And again, we learn this in Romans 3, 13, 1 through 2, where Paul says this, and this will profoundly change the way you view government. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This is Paul. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, that is an expansive view of God's sovereignty. But if out of our union with Christ, we are to submit to government, how much more should we willingly and gladly submit to the leaders that God has given to our community of faith to watch over and care for our souls as those who had given account. Now, one point of clarification, because there's lots of bad guys, charlatans out there 
um, saying that they're leaders in the church and actually they're, they're just really bad guys, okay? We're not called to follow people just because they say they're a leader. Remember, our leaders are also sheep being led by the great shepherd. And so if our leaders ever stop being sheep that are led by the great shepherd, not only do we no longer have the responsibility to obey and submit to them, we actually have the responsibility as the community of faith to remove them from leadership. So we're not obeying these elders and submitting to them because they're superior to us. Now, they're, they're sheep, just like we are. But assuming that our leaders are, are sheep, uh, being led by the shepherd, we are called to submit and obey them. And we're called to do this in a way that would let their leading be a means of joy. Look at, again, Hebrews thirteen seventeen, the last part of that verse. Let them, that's the leaders, do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be no advantage to you. We're to submit in such a way that would cause our elders uh, to be joyful, that their role as elders would be a source of joy and not a source of groaning in their lives. Now, I'm not an elder uh, here at Norris Ferry Community Church, but I can, I can testify to the fact uh, that being an elder is anything but easy. Uh, if you can imagine... Uh, taking Hebrews thirteen seventeen seriously and watching over the souls of 189 men and women that have been placed in your care. This is a, a weighty, weighty thing. They sacrificially give a lot of their time and the lay elders without any compensation to serve us for our good. Now, they're not perfect. Um, if you know them, you know that. They're amazing men, uh, but they're not perfect. Um, but they seek the Lord and they strive to do the best uh, and make the best decisions that they can with the limited resources and abilities that they have. They try to follow the Lord's leading. And most importantly, they love you guys. Uh, they love us. And in light of that fact, we're called uh, to let them lead with joy and not with groaning. Well, how do you do that? Well, we all have leadership responsibilities, either in our home or at work. And, and we know uh, there's been times where our leadership positions has caused us joy, uh, and when our leadership positions has caused us groaning, we don't have to look further than our household uh, to know that sometimes being a parent is a source of great joy, and sometimes being a parent will drive you to the edge of insanity, okay? Uh, so we are called to be like children who cause joy for their parents. Um, we are called to... Um, cause joy for our elders. Uh, O'Brien defines it this way, though. How can we submit and obey in a sense that will give them joy? He says this, the onerous work of leadership is made joyful when carried out in an atmosphere of trust and cooperation. In essence, O'Brien is saying, your elders will have joy if you just give them the benefit of the doubt. We have all been in environments where there's been the benefit of the doubt given and where there has not. And so the instruction here is, whenever you think uh, that the elders uh, have done something they should not have done or should have done something they didn't do, you have two choices. Either you can grumble and start disunity in the body, or you can approach the elders and say, I don't really understand why you did this. Could you help me understand where you were coming from and deal with it with them one-on-one? And Hebrews 13, 17 is encouraging us to do the latter. We're supposed to submit and obey in such a way that would give them joy. And why? We learn in Hebrews 13, it's not only for their joy, but it's also for our good. 
Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. As we submit and obey the elders who the Lord has placed to watch over our souls, it results in their joy and our good. But finally, we're to pray for our leaders. As the author of Hebrews gets close to the end of the book, he asks his audience to pray for him and those who are ministering with him. Look at Hebrews 13, 18 through 19. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. A call to pray for our leaders reminds us of the battle in which we currently find ourselves. We are in a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, between God and Satan. And like in every battle, it is strategic to take out the leaders. Uh, I re- read 1 Peter 5.8 often to remind myself of the seriousness of this battle because I think our current society likes t- for us to believe that this isn't going on, that everything's okay, that there's no real danger, that this Christian thing, this church thing is not really a big deal. Um, but 1 Peter 5.8 makes it very clear uh, this church thing is an extremely big deal. As Peter reminds us, instructs us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We have a real enemy. The church has a real enemy, and he's described as like a roaring lion who is seeking someone to devour. And it's more strategic for him to take out leaders. He's trying to take us all out, uh, no doubt. Uh, But that's why our leaders specifically need our prayer. Because remember, uh, they're not super Christians. They're sheep, just like us, that God has called to lead other sheep, uh, to watch over them, to lead, feed, and protect them. But they have the weaknesses that all of us have. Um, And it's God's strength that is made strong and awesome as he uses them to shepherd us but we need to pray for them. They need our prayers. We're called to submit to our leaders, to obey our leaders, and finally to pray for our leaders. So what's God's purpose for your life? Well, it's to do his will, not yours. How are you going to get the resources and the training and everything you need to do his will? Well, look to him as our all-sufficient supplier, provider, God will give us everything that we need to do his will. I hope this morning that that was buried a little deeper in your hearts than maybe it was before you came in here and we tried. And just reflect, as you reflect on this truth, continue reflecting God's greatness, the certainty of his provision, the important means of his provision of leaders that he's graciously given us, and as you think through your required response to those leaders. It's my prayer that that truth would be buried deep in our hearts. If you're here this morning and all this sounds a little kooky uh, and you haven't invited Jesus into your heart, if you haven't looked to the completed work of Christ to reconcile you to the Father, the invitation this morning is to do that. God's will for your life is to accept the provision that he has provided to reconcile you to himself. We are, the gospel says, simply made right with God through what Christ did on the cross. And so it's my hope and prayer that if you're here this morning and you haven't done that, come talk to me and I'd love to talk with you about that. If you're here this morning and you have placed your faith in the completed work of Christ on the cross and are reconciled to God, 
the invitation this morning is to remember and, and just bury deep the truth that God will provide everything you need to do his will. And that means if you've been walking with the Lord for a while and you keep failing and, and you, you don't really see clearly how God could use you anymore, that maybe now you're disqualified, the message of this text is that that's a lie, that his mercies are new every morning. He still has a purpose for you. He still has a way for you to participate in his purpose of reaching the nations with the gospel. So perhaps the morning, this morning, the purpose and invitation for you is to remember your great calling to participate in his purpose and to lean into those, your community of faith, to discern the good works that God prepared even before you were born to walk in so that you could participate with him fulfilling the Great Commission. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you that your justice and your grace and your mercy were fully reconciled on the cross where Christ died and paid the debt we owed so that we could be reconciled to you and enjoy the pleasure of having a relationship with the God of all creation. Lord, I thank you that you promise in your word that one, you have a purpose for us, that we can participate in your purpose of reaching the nations with the gospel and that we can do that as we go about our daily lives and walk in the good works here in Shreveport, Louisiana that you have prepared in advance for us to do. Lord, I pray you would give us wisdom as we think through this, how we can get more actively, more directly involved in what you're doing in this world. Lord, I pray for our community groups, that you would bless them, our leaders, that you would encourage them. Those who are here who aren't yet members, Lord, that you would encourage them this morning to take that next step and join us here as part of our community of faith. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.